0: A reading from Luke chapter one, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of a humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Alex. Well, good morning again. Um, I don't know if you have seen the TV show Schmigadoon. Um, Schmigadoon is a show on Apple TV. That's the real title of it, and uh, it's uh, it's a interesting show. It is uh, directed by Lauren Michaels, and it's got a big SNL kind of heavy cast: Cecily Strong, um, Keegan Michael Key, uh, Martin Short is in it. Um, Kristen Chenoweth, Fred Armisen. I mean it's got a, it's got a great cast. And the, the basic premise of this show is that there's this couple that is having relationship issues and so they go on this retreat to work on some of their to work on their relationship. And they're in the woods hiking together and they're fighting together and they somehow stumble into this kind of other world, this other dimension, kind of like walking through the wardrobe and ending up in Narnia. They just end up in this other town and it's bright, and it's you know it's kind of weirdly lit, and there are all these people in this town square, and when all the people in the town square see them, they just bust out into this song and a dance, like a, a synchronized dance, like a flash mob where everybody's singing and dancing, and they're both just like, what in the world is happening right now? And they realize they've stumbled into a musical, and they can't get out of it. They're trapped in this musical, and so after the first opening number ends, they kind of very weirdly walk to... Uh, the diner to get something to eat, and as they're looking over the menu, the the waitress hands them. They see corn pudding on the menu, and they're like, "What is corn pudding?" And the waitress is like, "You don't know what corn pudding is?" And they're like, the whole town comes back together and sings this whole song about how everyone loves corn pudding in the town of Schmigadoon. Now, the reason I bring that up is. Um, because the opening few chapters of the Gospel of Luke feel a little bit like Schmigadoon. Everybody's singing. You know, you, you have this passage that was just read, and um, Mary has just heard the news that she's going to give birth to the, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and she busts out into this song. And then this guy, Zechariah, starts singing. And then you have the angels singing with, you know, the shepherds in the field, and you have this dude named Simeon who's singing. It, it's like, it's, it almost kind of feels like a musical in these opening chapters of of Luke, and I think it's so interesting. These songs are so important because here we are 2,000 years later on the other side of the globe from where these songs were first sung, and we're still talking about them. There's something worth looking at. Why are these songs so memorable? Why are they so powerful? So what we're going to do for the season of Advent in the weeks leading up to Christmas. The weeks as we prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus, we're going to begin looking at these kind of early first Christmas carols, these first Christmas songs, and just listening to them one by one. And, and the opening number begins with uh, a song that Mary sings. It's commonly referred to as the Magnificat, which is kind of the Latin translation of when she when she says in that first line, "My soul magnifies." the Lord. Maybe you've heard of the Magnificat before, but here's how one New Testament scholar referred to this song that she sings. Quote, it is one of the most famous songs in Christianity. It has been whispered in monasteries, chanted in cathedrals, recited in small remote churches by evening candlelight, and set to music with trumpets and kettle drums by Johann Sebastian Bach. It is the gospel before the gospel, a fierce, bright shout of triumph. It's Pretty amazing, you know, press for this song. Um, this is the first... This is the first Christmas carol. It was the first song sung at the very first Christmas, and so there's a lot that it can tell us about what Christmas is all about. And I want to suggest that Christmas is really about three things um, with you this morning. Christmas is about condescension, revolution, and salvation. So that's what we're going to look at. Christmas in this, in this opening song Mary is telling us that what Christmas is really about is about condescension, revolution, salvation. First, condescension, which by the way, not condensation. This is not, Christmas is not about the water cycle. Condescension, which means to, uh, you know, to condescend, to stoop down towards. And, And here's where I get this from. You know, if you think about Mary, Mary would have been a young teenager at this point. Scholars believe probably about 13 years old or so. And um, which means if this is our modern day, she would have been in our middle school ministry. And we know from other passages of Scripture that she was extremely poor. She lived in this impoverished Israelite village, and, and she herself was very poor. And obviously, she is a woman, which in her cultural moment did not serve you well, which meant as a, as a young woman in this cultural context, she had no power she had no voting rights, she had no inheritance, no status, and very little access to resources. She, she was, by all accounts, really a complete nobody. A, she, she lived at the bottom rung of society, and yet, despite all of that, despite her circumstances, she's singing. She's rejoicing. Look at verse 46. Here's how it begins. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She's erupting in wholehearted, joyful praise. She's singing. But why? Well, look at verse 48. It says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant in light of her humble estate, being at the bottom rung of society, her lowliness, God has looked upon her. He has been mindful of her. He has singled her out to be the one who brings the Messiah into the world, which is a fairly big deal. But here's, here's what's interesting about that. For God to single her out meant that he passed over the influencers of the day he passed over the rich, he passed over the powerful, and he chose her, which was the most unlikely, most unqualified, most unexpected candidate to be a part of this big thing that God's doing in redemptive history. Now, you might hear that and you think, well, well, God's just, you know, kind of feeling the Christmas spirit, and he just wants to throw a little charity towards this kind of no-name kind of person who's poor. And okay, maybe that's what he's doing, or maybe this is not a glitch in his behavior. Maybe this is just his normal MO. This is how he just tends to operate. In fact, if you read through the Bible as a whole, you will constantly see time and time again, he is giving favor and he's bestowing blessing on people who are at the margins of society. People who are at the bottom of society, people who are moral failures, people who are spiritual dropouts it 's always the people at the bottom that God tends to be choosing and blessing and pursuing, which for modern people it 's kind of hard to wrap our mind around how crazy that is, how earth shattering that is on every every other religion, every other culture in the world. there are, historians will say if you look at any you know kind of the history of world religion, every religion prioritized people who were at the top of the social order. So the pharaohs, uh, kings, generals, priests, the people who were at the top were the people that that culture believed God is with them. God is is for them. God is in some ways even uh, incarnated himself in them. That's how valued the people at the top were. Every culture, every religion except one. The people of Israel, the culture of Israel, their God flipped everything on its head. In fact, if you look at the ancient Near East, there's this um, old law called primogeniture, the law of primogeniture, which meant that all of the, the bulk of the possession, the bulk of the power, and the bulk of the, uh, the press went to the eldest son of the family. That's just how things worked. The oldest son kind of got everything, and yet God is constantly choosing the younger son, not the older son. He chooses uh, Abel, not Cain. He chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. He chooses Jacob, not Esau. And women in this culture, um, uh, this culture prized and privileged women who were attractive, who were able to have a lot of babies, and who were sexually faithful. And we see God choosing a woman who's unattractive, Leah, We see God choosing barren women like Sarah and Hannah and Elizabeth. We we see God choosing a sexually immoral woman like Rahab. In fact, if you read through the Old Testament, there's this phrase that kind of pops up all throughout, that God stands with and he stands up for the widow, the fatherless, the immigrant, and the poor the widow, the fatherless, the immigrant, and the poor. And theologians have referred to that little grouping as the quartet of the vulnerable. Because in that particular society, those were the people that were uniquely vulnerable, uniquely powerless. And yet, Constantly that phrase shows up that God stands with them, that He defends them, that He He joins in with them, which is mind-blowing when you think about the context in which the Bible was written in. Because the Bible was written in a cultural context that was largely patriarchal. And into a patriarchal society, God says, I stand with the widows, poor women. In a society that was largely um, fueled by family relationships and blood and kin. Um, God says, I stand with the fatherless. I stand with the orphan, people who don't have family. This was also a culture that was uh, largely nationalistic, tribalistic, fueled by racial identity. And God says, I stand with the immigrant, people who are racial outsiders to, to that particular context. This was a context that favored the rich, and God says, I stand with the poor. Over and over and over, God is constantly choosing people that you wouldn't expect Him to choose. He's blessing people that are the most unlikely, unexpected, which tells you this Christmas is an extension of what has always come before. Christmas is an extension of what God is up to in the world, which is condescension to come down and to join with the very people at the bottom. Just like Mary, he he joins her. He comes down. He meets with her, and he sweeps her up into this bigger thing that he's doing in the world. That's the first thing that Christmas is really about: condescension. Here's the second. It's not just about condescension. It's about revolution. Revolution. I wanted to do the the what is that? Hunger Games? Revolution sign. Um, if you um, were to think about the songs that we typically sing at Christmas time. Um, I, you know, they're, they're, they're fun. They're warm and cozy. I, I, I Googled the top ten Billboard Christmas songs of all time, and here were some of the songs that were on that list. You have uh, A Holly Jolly Christmas. You have Jingle Bell Rock, classic. You have uh, Feliz Navidad. You even have Last Christmas by Wham. You remember that one? Last Christmas, you, you remember that one. Number one all-time Christmas song is, you guessed it, All I Want for Christmas is You, Mariah Carey. Baby. And um, those songs are fun and they're sentimental and they make you want to put on a Christmas sweater and drink a peppermint mocha. And yet, Mary's song is nothing like those. Mary's song is about bringing radical revolution to the world. Look at verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Dietrich Bonhoeffer preached a sermon from this passage on December 17th, 1933, and I included a little excerpt from that sermon in your, the t- front of your bulletin, but here's what he says. He says, referring to Mary's song here, it is the most passionate, most vehement, one might almost say most revolutionary hymn ever sung. None of the sweet, sugary, or childish tones that we find so often in our Christmas hymns, but a hard, strong, uncompromising song of bringing down rulers from their thrones and humbling the lords of this world. I mean, he's absolutely right. This is not tame, silent Mary, who's just kind of the quiet, sweet one in the nativity scene. She's singing about overthrowing governments, She's thinking about bringing down power structures, feeding the hungry, and sending the rich away with nothing. In fact, I read um, this week that this, this passage of Scripture in three different countries, India, Guatemala, and Argentina, it's illegal to read this passage publicly. Isn't that wild? It's, it's illegal to do what we're doing right now in those countries because... This passage, is, it's too threatening. It's, it's revolutionary. Isn't that fascinating? It's, been, it's banned. And in fact, this is not unique, though, to the Bible. This is a theme that is sprinkled all throughout the Bible. In fact, um, in our preparation song this morning, uh, there's some lyrics that, that harken back to this passage in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 4, which reads this. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Now, this is a poetic image that is getting at what the Bible talks about justice. What do you get when you have a mountain that's brought low, and you have a valley that's raised up? You have a flat plain, you have the delta. And what this is saying is that in God's economy, when God's kingdom comes, there's a great leveling where the people at the top and the people at the bottom are equalized. There's equity and there's, there's uh, equality. That in God's kingdom, it, there, there's not, there are not haves and then have nots, some with privilege and some without privilege. Everything gets leveled. Now, you think about the city of Memphis. And you see that some people kind of live on the mountaintop, as it were, and some people live in, in a valley. Some people have more access to resources and transportation and good health care and um, uh, just access to more stuff, and some people don't. And what this is saying is that God has come in the person of Jesus to do something about that. God has come to undo the disparity that we see that's staggering in our own city, in our own backyard. Now, modern American Christians hear this, and we start to get a little uncomfortable because this feels and smells like Marxism. And we're like, I, this, I don't like this. This feels like Marxism. This is not Marxism. This is Mary. This is, this is the Bible, and, and what's 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 hard for us is because I think the reason one of the reasons why I think we're so we can be so allergic to some of this language that the Bible gives us is because in our current cultural moment we tend to be, as the American church, the people at the top. We have the most resources, which means we have the most to lose. And so if the Bible looks at you and me and says, "There's going to be an equalizing one day someday," if the thing that you love the most in this world is your money and your power and your privilege and your position, this doesn't feel like good news. This feels like a threat. And what I want you to see is that Christmas is confrontational. Mary's song isn't just giving us the warm fuzzies and want you to get the eggnog latte and put on your Mariah Carey. It's, it's, it's confronting us. It's confronting us to start to love something bigger and better than our own little kingdom. That God's doing something in the world where he's, he's, undo, he's bringing a revolution where everything is starting to get reversed. People who are at the top are invited out of love for their neighbor to start to give, sacrifice, expend themselves, to voluntarily bring themselves low so that other people who, might be brought, who are low might be lifted up. That's what his kingdom is doing. That's what he's doing in the world. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you are called and invited into participating in it. What does it look like for you to steward your resources, what you have available to you, to give it, to, to sacrifice it, to use it in such a way so that people who are in the valley, as it were, might be lifted up? You see how Mary's song is um, its confrontational. It's, it's provocative. It's aggressive. It's, it doesn't give you the warm fuzzies. It's, it's a song. Christmas is really about revolution. It's about condescension. It's about revolution. Here's the last thing. Christmas is also about salvation. It's about salvation. Uh, you might remember the story from about three years ago. It was a famous story that was in the news that um, there was a soccer team in Thailand middle school team, a group, of, uh, a group of kids. They were 11 to 16 years old. Their team name was the Wild Boars, which is awesome. And one day their coach decided to take them on a field trip. He wanted to show them something cool. And they get on their bikes in their village and they go over to this cave. It's an open mouth cave. And they bring some water and they bring some flashlights. They're only going to be in there for about an hour. And they go in and they start to explore this cave. And they didn't realize it. But when they were in there, There's this huge rainstorm that blew overhead. It's just dumping tons and tons and tons of water, and all the water starts rushing into this cave, and it blocks the exit to get out of the cave, and the water's flooding in, and it's rising, and so here are these kids, and they can't escape, and so the only thing that they can do is go deeper and deeper and deeper into the cave to get away from the water that's rushing in and rising. They go back and back and back further, 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 and they eventually find this this kind of This hill of sand, way in the back of this labyrinth of tunnels. And they get up on this sand dune, and the water comes in and eventually stops rising. And then there they are, trapped. Pitch black darkness, no food, no ability to contact the outside world, no sign that anybody from the outside world is even looking for them. And there they are, they're just stuck. People eventually realize that they're trapped in there and they form a search and rescue team and they get these Navy SEALs and frogmen and they get all you know, decked out in all their stuff with the oxygen tanks and they go swimming through this maze of tunnels trying to find these kids. Can't find them. Keep trying, keep trying. Three different people that were trying to rescue them were hospitalized because their oxygen tanks got too low and they got hurt, injured. Uh, one person died. In the attempt of rescuing these, this team, these kids and their coach, eventually they find them. How they get them out is a, is a whole other story in and of itself. It's, it's, it's amazing. But they eventually, one by one, get these kids and swim them out to safety to come and rescue them and to come and save them. They had been in there 17 days. No food. They survived by licking the water off of the walls. Isn't that amazing? It's an amazing story. There's a lot more to it. But if you hear that story and you think, wow, that was really costly. Why didn't the search and rescue people just eventually say, hey, this is too hard. This is taking too long. Um, we're, we're, people are dying over this. People are getting hospitalized over this. This is, this is not worth it. Why didn't they quit? Here's why they didn't quit. Because those boys mattered, and they were in trouble and they needed to be saved and rescued, and they couldn't rescue themselves. Christmas is a thing because you and I matter, and we are in trouble, and we need to be rescued, and we can't save ourselves. And so God comes. He comes to pull us out of a cave of sin and misery that we have created for ourselves. He has come to save us from ourselves. In fact, if you notice God is the subject of every sentence in Mary's song except the first one. He he is the one doing all of the action. In verse 47, she refers to him as God, my Savior. In verse 49, she sings, he who is mighty has done great things for me. In verse 54, she sings, he has helped my servant Israel. She knows from her own life we are helpless and unable to save ourselves, and so God comes, and he helps, and he's the Savior. And In fact, God's relationship with Mary is just a small microcosm of how he relates to all of us, how he saves his people in general. Because think about it. Here's Mary at the bottom. She's way down here, bottom rung of society, and here's God high and lifted up, mighty and on his throne. And what does he do? He comes down so that she might be lifted up. This is what she's saying in verse 48. She says, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She's blessed. She's she's elevated. She's lifted up. He who was lifted high becomes low so that she who is lowly might be lifted up. And here's what's crazy. Mary had no idea the lengths to which this God would go in order to really save his people because He made himself even lower, even smaller than this. Think about the child that's in her womb. This is God the Son, who has shared eternal glory with God the Father from eternity past. And you know how small he becomes? He becomes a single cell. You can't get any lower than that. And then he's born into Mary's poverty. And he grows up in this obscure, impoverished Israelite village. And he goes even lower than that. Because on the cross, he he is cast out of civilization. He's cast out of the city. He dies outside the city gates. He dies uh, executed as as a criminal. He's abandoned by his family. He's abandoned by his friends. He's abandoned by his heavenly father. He who was on the mountain of glory enters into the valley of the judgment of God. Why does he come so low? To lift us up, to save us, to pull us out of the cave. That is what he is here, and that is what he has chosen to do. He is is the embodiment of, of verse 52. He is the one who is mighty on the throne, and he gets brought down. He is the one who is truly rich, and yet he is the one that is sent away with nothing, so that we who have nothing might actually be truly rich. Christmas is about salvation. Now, final thought and then I'm done. It's it's intriguing to me that Mary is singing in the song. That's just such a that's such a spontaneous reaction. Something has so moved her that she has just started singing. That's such a unique thing to do. So here's the question, how can Mary's song become your song? How can you sing in the same way that Mary is singing? And here's how. Look at verse 47. She says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You notice the personal pronoun? This is not abstract for her. This is not theoretical, interesting data that she's learned. She has connected God's saving work to her personal life. And Christianity will not make you sing unless you learn to connect God's saving work to your personal and particular life. Christmas might be sentimental, and it might be fun. It won't move you like this, though. Christianity might make you feel morally or theologically superior to people that don't get it like you do, but it won't move you like this. If you want to sing, if you want, if you want to sing like Mary, then you begin to relate to God as your Savior. You begin to say things like she says, he has come for me. He, in, he has met me in my humble estate. He has, he has sent his son for me. Two amazing realities that you see embodied in Mary. She knows that she has a great need for a Savior, and she knows that she has a great Savior for her need. You connect those two things in your heart, you will sing. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, we do have a great need for a Savior, and we do have a great Savior for our need. Father, take these truths, take these realities, and help press them deeper into our hearts and deeper into our souls. Help us to enjoy this wonderful season of Christmas with all of its shopping and lights and sweets and parties, and yet help us, Father, to not get distracted into missing what Christmas is actually about. Help us to see and to know that Jesus' coming is about condescension and revolution and salvation. Sweep us up into this great story that you are writing right here in our own city and in the world that you love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.